It's good to see everyone today. I, actually, the light is such I don't see many of you, but faith comes by hearing and not by sight. So uh, it is great. It's a privilege to be able to speak to this group today because I'm very much a latecomer to be here as far as living here. Uh, there was an earlier plan we'll get to later in the lesson. But uh, I couldn't help but think, with all of the people here, some, many from other places have come to be here today. I think about the old song that says, Precious Memories, Unseen Angels. Wherever there are precious memories, there are unseen angels. And there is the Holy Spirit of God who is working and orchestrating and blessing and leading through the hard times and the good times. And all of those precious memories, most all of them are connected in one way or another with a dream. There's something about dreaming that man needs to stay alive. This is a month uh, in which 52 years ago a very famous speech called I Have a Dream was delivered. They found out in the last week or two that there was a nine-month earlier edition to that that's in very good condition, reel-to-reel tape that will be coming out soon, maybe the earliest rendition of Martin Luther King's lesson. There's no Chinese proverb that says the most cruel thing you could ever do to punish anyone is to have them live a long time with the total inability to dream about anything. You see, dreams are super important. I'm glad Steve mentioned that in the uh, video that uh, we sang that song that we just finished many times in the old days because we had so many dreams for God. And so if my slides are on and I don't see them or we geared up here for my slides, okay, well, okay, God make us dreamers again. You know, I think a lot of us had some tremendous dreams in the early days. All of them didn't come true. Many of them came true. And sometimes through the passing of time, we can lose those dreams. They become dim. They don't become uh, or remain the motivators that they once were. And yet everything about God's work among men has been dreaming. It's been His dream passed on to us. And so... We have these words here from Acts 2. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. That's God's dream for us is that we dream for him and with him. In Matthew 13, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men, speaking about the Old Testament guys, longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. We have seen many miracle stories, heard from many who lined up, saw many on the screen, because there were dreams that motivated us. There were dreams for a better life, dreams for a better church, dreams for a movement that could shake the world. And that is what drew us in, and that is what kept us going. God wants to make us dreamers. Jesus had that dream for us. The early church received it, passed it on. 
We're going to look at some passages in Acts today because we are uh, one of a few movements that say that our mantra is to restore the church as it was in the beginning. Uh, It is a great dream to restore. And so because Acts is that early history book of the church, its establishment and spread, we're going to look at some verses in Acts and some of the ones that actually affect me more than any others uh, that just fit life so well. Now, here's the context of that earlier passage we read. This is on the day of Pentecost. This is when the church came into being, when it was established. And so Peter now is the spokesperson. He stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowds. Uh, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people, all these guys who had been speaking in other languages, uh, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Uh, It's difficult to get drunk by nine in the morning. I have a couple of relatives that figured a way around that, but at any rate, you probably have some too. He says, no. He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And now he quotes from Joel chapter 2. He says, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men, your young men see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Now, he's talking about the miraculous to some extent. And yet, that is a part of breathing for a disciple of Jesus. To dream to dream dreams, to be empowered by God carrying out those dreams. But you know, it's not enough just to receive them in the sense of getting saved. It's a matter, once we have it, of passing it on. So it is not a surprise to me that the passage in Acts 2, quoted from Joel 2, ends, all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's not surprising that Paul quotes from that same passage in Joel 2 in Hebrews chapter 10. Well, we lost it here, did we? Uh, For there is no difference, he said, between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for, and now we're back to Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says, it's not enough just to get saved. That's not The reason that God has a dream is just for me to get saved. He says, how then shall they call on the one in whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them, sharing the message? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What are your feet looking like today? Well, they're blessed if we are sharing good news. But that is God's plan. We receive it and we pass it on. Uh, The early days of our movement was all about that purpose. As Steve said, you know, making our conversion something that we pass on, reaching others with the good news. I made a trip down to what was called the Crossroads Church at the time in Gainesville, Florida, in 1981. I'd heard a lot about it, good and bad. And I went down there to visit, and it was just incredible the number of new disciples. They were converting hundreds of campus students every year by that time, and it was amazing to see. It was what I came to call very early on sort of a renewal movement within the mainline church. 
And so there were, were all the things, the small group Bible studies they called soul talks. And uh, then they got changed to Bible talks as we call them today. But they had prayer partners, discipleship partner concept. And uh, they were making quite an impact. They were training uh, young men and women to go out into churches and start similar campus ministries in other places. And so uh, that was a, a very motivating thing for me. I was at one seminar, the Rocky Mountain one that uh, Travis mentioned. I was at that seminar for the first time in March of 1981, and they said, everyone that's been baptized within the last two years, please stand up. And almost everybody stood up. I was, a ga- I was just shocked at how many young people were being converted. And I knew in my heart at that time I had to be a part of it, even though it took four years for me to finally make that step. But at any rate, that's where things got going. Then it moves up to Boston. One of the campus ministries went up there. And uh, the church started growing madly there. And in the very, very early time, they came out with a bulletin. I spoke there in 1982 when the church was still pretty small. But they came out with a bulletin, and they listed all the cities that they were going to plant churches in. They weren't satisfied with just taking a campus group and starting something in an existing church. They said, you know, we run into some problems with that one. We're just going to send out a team and plant churches. And they listed all of the major cities of the world. I wasn't in the movement at that time, and I thought, wow, what are they thinking? Who do they think they are? Well, you know, later I moved to Boston and lived there 16 years. Teresa and I served in many capacities while there. I'll tell you this, every one of those churches was planted uh, at least by the time I left Boston uh, over a decade ago. It was all the dream. Can we get this thing back? Oh, good, good, good. Uh, the Boston church, the church plantings. Now, the dream of Jesus realized in Dallas. You saw some of the things about the early days there. But as I look through the book of Acts, I'm always struck with the principles that worked then that we actually have imitated now. It's amazing that human beings listening to God kind of go similar paths. Let's read this together. Now those who had had the church established, Acts 2, they went through the early days in Jerusalem up to chapter 8, then the persecution, then their spread. Jesus said in Acts 1 to the apostles before he ascended, he said, okay, here's the mission plan. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's a pretty brief plan, right? Uh, not quite some, like some of our plans that had a lot more detail than that, but that's what Jesus said. And it was going to force them to depend on the Holy Spirit to get it done. And we'll get to that passage in a moment. But it says, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word to only Jews, uh, or among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to, to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. 
and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tar- Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, Paul as we know him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, when you look at that passage, at first, they are scattered abroad, and they're just kind of wandering around, figuring out what to do, and just doing something. And so they started sharing, and they converted people, and The leaders in Jerusalem said, hey, they need a leader there. So they sent Barnabas, and he said, I need some more help. We're doing well, but man, what could we do if we had Saul here? So they went after him and brought him down. Now, put that next slide on. It looks better than me. Uh, (laughs) The dream began with these individual disciples who were just out there trying to figure out what to do in saving others. It progressed with a leader chosen. It progressed further with more leaders joining in, and then it resulted in great numbers of people in that church, which was in one of the three greatest cities of the first century, a great church built there that then was used as a springboard to evangelize the rest of the world. And so the dream was passed on in Dallas, or from Dallas, Acts 13 Here's one of my favorite passages in Acts. I'll tell you why in a moment. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, this thing that strikes me, is they were just trying to be spiritual. They didn't have a lot of elaborate plans. They were just trying to be spiritual. And when they got to the point, they were fasting and praying and waiting on God, that's when God said, okay, Barnabas and Paul, it's time to go. And that was the first journey as we know it. On the handout that you have today, here is a listing of what took place out of the Dallas church. After one year, A third of the then Dallas-Fort Worth church sent out three teams. New Orleans with the Spiveys, San Antonio with the Browns, Houston uh, with the uh, Wadstroms, then Oklahoma City in 92 with the Moons, Colleen 93 with the uh, Baldwins, 95, two plantings, Little Rock, Arkansas with the Chrises, Austin with the Spats, two new church plantings in 96, College Station by the Moons. Some of these guys are dual guys. They go to one and start another. So I kind of like Paul. Fort Worth is planted, uh, led by Kent DeFee. Uh, De 97, two plantings. El Paso with the Anthus, Stillwater with the Reeds. And then 98, Fayetteville with the Ratleys. 99, two campus ministries planted, West Texas A&M uh, with the Anthus and Texas Tech University in Lubbock with the uh, Akins. And uh, then, you, 2000, we're still going. Okay. 2000, uh oh, wait, stop. Rio Grande Valley uh, with the Salazars in 2000. Now, there's a big gap between 2000 and 2014, right? There's a big gap there. Well, our churches went through some challenges. 
Uh, a lot of those challenges we brought on ourselves. We had to do some learning and growing and repenting, and we did. Uh, but it did slow some things down. Necessarily, while we got regrouped. But the thing is, we got to be regrouped. Uh, we'll talk more about that. But uh, now, 2014, Lubbock replanted with the uh, oaks. 2015, that will be done today. Norman, Oklahoma, with the uh, Borlands. Corpus Christi has already gone out. We've sent members to that planting as well. Some will be leaving uh, probably this week. Okay, in the book of Acts, though, we had challenges come up. You start messing around with Satan's kingdom, and he's going to deal with you. He's going to try to do everything that he can to stop you, so it's never a surprise that you go through challenging times. We don't like that, do we? We don't like it as a church. We don't like it as a movement. We don't like it personally. But if you're trying to do God's will, it doesn't make things easier. It makes things tougher because you're swimming against the stream if you're going to be a true disciple. Acts 15 starts off with a Jew-Gentile controversy that sent Paul down to Jerusalem, him and Barnabas, to try to straighten this thing out. It could have split the movement. At the end of Acts 15, Barnabas and Saul had a, had a falling out. And uh, so that sort of stopped their working together as far as we know, though they, be, they remained friends, thankfully. But they couldn't stop the mission. The Jerusalem conference avoided the crisis with the Jew-Gentile thing and put out a letter by the leaders. And then Paul and Silas went on the second journey. Barnabas went on with John Mark over to Cyprus. Now, I don't know all the problems you've had here, okay? I, I don't need to know. I had enough of my own. I've been in some other places. We've had plenty of problems, okay? But the question is, do we still have a dream that gets us past the problems? I, I know this. You did have some leadership problems through the years in the Dallas-Fort Worth Church. I know that. I was called in to try to help a couple of times in those situations. So it's good to come back now and see the leadership in the Dallas-Fort Worth Church being so harmonious. Amen. Amen. Count your blessings. It took a lot of work, a lot of prayer, and some time to get there. I know how that looks. I've been in church with problems, and we worked through, but it took time. It took years. Just be grateful that God always works through if we persevere. Now, this is my other favorite passage in Acts in one way, because as you are doing what you believe is God's dream, in fact, if you are doing what you know is God's dream, there's still going to be times when God says, stop. Uh, we're not ready for that right now, thank you. Or we'd really like to do this other thing first. And so you get to this passage here in Acts 16. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, that's where he went on the third journey, God led him then, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. Thought, well, okay, we can't go to Asia. Can we go to Bithynia? The Spirit said no to that. So they passed by Mysia, went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, one of the greatest challenges in life for most of us is when God says no, or when God says wait. When God said, I don't care what your plan is, I've got a plan and it's going to override yours, okay? Just man up and he's going to override. Uh, in 1988, Teresa and I were supposed to be the couple that came to plant the Dallas church. We did, as Travis said, start coming down and uh, working with the groups that were here to try to pull them together and to get ready for us to bring people from Boston. And about a week before we had this big evangelism seminar and a meeting, a, a dinner, and try to recruit more people and all that that I'd already planned all out. It was just awesome. I thought I got called over to the lead evangelist in Boston's house and the two elder couples, and they said, you know, uh, they'd asked me a year before, would you be an elder here? I said, no, I don't be an elder. Uh, I'm an evangelist. I want to plant the church of Dallas. I do not want to be an elder. And so somehow, I, I don't know, I got led down the path here, and, and uh, they said, well, okay, we'll point you for one year, and then you can lead the church to Dallas. That's one of those things, when you put that foot in, you think, ooh, ooh, I shouldn't be stepping on that. <laughs> I just had that funny feeling. I remember the conversation. I remember where we were at a wedding, everything. And so a week before that uh, conference, before the team was going to be finalized, I got called over to one of the leaders' houses, and they said, you know, it's more important that you stay here and be an elder in Boston than that you go plant the church. And I'm thinking, listen, I am tired in Boston every day. Somebody is saying, hey, you got a funny accent. Where are you from? Because I knew if I could just get down here, I know the language. I got various dialects, you understand. I'm a little mixed up. Louisiana boy right across the border, though. Baja, Texas, my California friend said. But anyway, <laughs> uh, they said no. And, you know, if you go through a really hard time of grief, you lose somebody close, usually the first year is really rough. I had a one-year really hard grief about not being here in 1989 or 90. That was a hard year. I was having dinner with Fred Height earlier this year, and Fred listened to all this stuff, you know, the story. He just looked at me, and he says, well, he said, were they right? <laughs> so I never had it put to me quite that bluntly. Um, <laughs> but I said, you know, they were. I never would have been a teacher. I never would have written a dozen books, many of which are on the sale table out there, by the way. <laughs> Uh, but I, I never would have gotten into that part of my life, and that's my strongest suit. I've been an elder evangelist and, and a teacher, but my strongest suit is a teacher. The other things, you know, I did okay at, but uh, th this is what my greatest gift is, I think, to be a teacher. And so, was God right? Yeah. So, you know, George took it a little more smilingly. He said, well, you know, you got here, didn't you? He said, you're just 25 years late. Uh, being late, it's not always easy to me, but you know, God has worked on me through the years because 
I have a hard time accepting his hand in my life. At points, when it's all good stuff, I mean, oh yeah, thank you Jesus, this is the way it's supposed to be. (laughs) But then when the hard times come, I question, why God, why me God, why now God? You know, if you read the Bible, you see the psalmist doing that, but he always got it worked out by the end of the psalm, except for Psalm 88. You know, you start, I don't know how long it took to write the various psalms, but it started off, hey, it's tough, God, what are you doing up there, basically, is what they're saying, but then by the end, they're back trusting God. Now, if you keep on with the questioning, you end up like Job, he questioned way too long. And sometimes, I've done that, where I am right now and what I'm working on, this is a big lesson of life from an older brother, to most of you. What I'm trying to do now is just to say, Gordon, God is God. He's never wrong. He's never wrong. And so quit questioning and just say, God, I'm your, do whatever you want. It's your deal. You do it and help me to accept it quickly and to quit doing all the questioning. Uh, I've been working on all that recently, and it's where I am right now. If I can just stay here. But it's where I am right now. God is God. He's a God of me, and he's a God of you. And whatever he chooses to do, we've got to adjust to it. Okay, back on the slides. The dream of Jesus. Will his dream continue through us? I look at Paul. He never wavered or slowed down until he left this earth. He is my model. He's a guy that I'm trying to follow in ministry. When I got off the church staff in Arizona seven years ago at age 65, I had a lot of friends in the church that say, wow, Gordon, you worked really hard through all these years. It's time for you to slow down and relax and take it easy and stuff like that. One day I was out praying. I remember exactly where I was on my prayer walk. And I said, God, people are acting now, since I'm 65 and a card-carrying Medicare guy, uh, you know, people are acting like I'm supposed to slow down. But I said, God, if I decide to slow down, then that's my decision, and I don't have the right to make it. So I'm just going to keep on ginning, and whenever you want to slow me down, it'll have to be through my health or my wife's or both. Whenever you decide we slow down, we'll slow down. Well, my wife in time, maybe five years later, developed COPD. She got breathing issues. She got back issues. She got other issues, including a husband. But uh, at any rate... You know, I haven't slowed down. I'll be 73 in two months. I haven't slowed down. I thought I was going to die a few times. I've said I'd like to die preaching. I love preaching. You can tell that. You can't ever shut me up. I love to preach. Uh, And if I fall dead in the pulpit, you'll know that God answered that prayer. Don't worry. (laughs) You know, whenever that comes, if God grants my wish, then you just go on and eating lunch and enjoy and all that. <laughs> I'll be gone. Somebody take care of this body. It's about worn out anyway. But uh, at any rate, guys, my question is, what about his dream continuing through us? When I saw the planning in 2000 and not another one to 2014, I thought, okay, I understand all our challenges, all the things we went through, but where are our dreams in all of that. 
personally, as a congregation, as a movement. The church Paul left behind had some choices to make. He did, he did well till the end, but the church, honestly, they went through some things and they made a lot of wrong choices, many in the church. And God leaves us the record so we can learn from history, right? We don't want to repeat the same mistakes. We've got to figure out a way to be different than some of the churches in the early times. In essence, they fell prey to the drifting effect. It is hard to keep a relationship going well and increasing. Teresa and I celebrated our 50th anniversary uh, this January past. And I, I'm telling you, keeping a relationship growing for 50 years, that is not a small task. There will be setbacks. There will be challenges. I mean, there are times, and I think, good night. <laughs> After all these years, and I'm still messing up. It's mostly me. You could guess that anyway, right? Uh, Mark 4 warned us. Jesus talked about four kinds of soil, and he talked about the kind that does become Christian, but then is going to have challenges with time. Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, and there are many, the deceitfulness of wealth. I did a four-part series in Dallas East region in the last four weeks. I preach strongly every time, because that's what I do. Uh, I don't have much time left on this earth, man. I'm going to spit it out and, and challenge people when I see the need for challenge. Hopefully commend when I see the need to do that, and there are many things to commend. Amen. Thank you. But uh, I preached on money this last time. That was the quiet night. My wife said, you know, every church is weird about something, and I don't know why, she said, but they're weird about money. I don't know what all's going on, guys, but the Bible is the Bible is the Bible, right? Uh, and one of the things that can get us is the deceitfulness of wealth, but then the other thing is desires for other things. I think when we did hit the slowdown time in 2003, I think a lot of us got involved in many other things things, and now we do not know how to get untangled from them. We look back at the way we used to live. Those of us that have been around a long time, we say, well, you know, I was too busy. I was this. I was that. Well, maybe so, but where are we now as far as our dreams and our total commitment to the Lordship of Christ? We did say when we came, uh, just before we went into the water, Jesus is Lord. He is master. He is a controller. He is everything in our life, and he can do what he wants anytime he wants, any way he wants, because he is our Lord. We said it. Well, here, here are two churches at the end of the first century. He said, I know your deeds, Ephesus. Your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate uh, wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for not my name have not grown weary. I mean, they're at church every time. They're at all the activities. They're serious about it. But he said, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. 
Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. Now, they're really busy. They're really faithful in many ways, but the heart's different. They're no longer filled with the love and the zeal and the excitement and the dreams that they had as young Christians. That one speaks to me. It does. I hope it speaks to you. I hope we do some examining. I had a couple of brothers come up this morning after Tuesday night's lesson on money and giving and God and all that. And they said, you know, we had some repenting to do and we've done it. Well, I was encouraged. I don't know how many others, you know, uh, do not want to talk about it still. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot to keep it going. We've got to have a real openness to do it. And then the other passage is Revelation 3. This one is convicting as well. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, have acquired wealth, do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So lukewarmness, what was that? In this passage, it's not whether you can jump up and down during the songs. That's not what lukewarmness is, that you're not excited enough in the service, shouting amen enough. It's really about materialism, isn't it? It's about people that got caught up in the values of their society. And that's my greatest fear for our churches right now is that we take the American dream and we embrace that. And then we have, secondly, the American church dream, which is a nice place to go that can encourage you on Sundays after a hard week and only hear good news and pats on the back and you're okay and everything's fine. Listen, I go to doctors because I want to know what's going on with me physically. I go to church because I want people to tell me the truth. And when it's time to repent, I need help to do it, but I'm going to do it. So, is, just, is this just a feel-good church? No. It is in another way, though, because you always feel good when you do right. You always feel good when you repent, and that's what God is calling us to do. Okay, our dreams need revival. Church growth trends. I heard from someone the other day that supposedly knows this. He said, outside the U.S., our churches, we planted churches, I don't know, it was 160 nations, seven, it's a lot. In all these nations, those outside the U.S. are growing at about 10% a year. In the U.S., less than 2% in the U.S. And so I get back to where I was before I got in this movement. I used to tell the churches I preach for, oh yeah, we're growing. We're growing more than most churches in our area. But if everyone did only what we're doing growth-wise, the large majority of the world would meet God without warning. And really, that's about where we are now in our movement, guys. 
I love our movement. It's everything those 25 people said. I love our movement. But guys, there are a whole lot of people that aren't in it that could be and would be if we had the same kind of thinking and heart and commitment and dreams that we once had, many of us, right? Uh, so, how do we revive our dream? A Jesus-focused life in two ways. There are a lot of motivations, guys, but our focus on Jesus and the cross. Being constrained by his love, 2 Corinthians 5, that is the only motivation that will last a lifetime. There are some motivations we've used that were wrong. There are other motivations we've used that were secondary-type motivations. They were good in their place. But the ultimate motivation is Jesus on a cross for me. I owed a debt I could not pay, so he paid a debt he did not owe. That's got to be our motivation. And then, that leads us to the imitation of him. We are now his representatives. We are the body of Christ on earth to do and to be what he would do and be were he here in the flesh again. We are the extension of Jesus. We are his representatives. We are about uh, what the world is going to know about Jesus. It's what they see in our lives. Amen? All right. Which way are you looking? We're looking back 25 years. That's a good thing. To go back and count your blessings and name them one by one, as the old song says. That's a good thing. But I'm more concerned that we're looking forward to the next 25 because you see, my son is here today. 25 years from now, I'm sure I'll be long gone by then. But 25 years from now, my son will be my age that I am today. 25 years from now, my grandsons, my three who are here, they'll be in their 30s and 40s. Mercy, that's what I say. <laughs> I don't know where those 25 years went, but I know this. The next 25 will come and go pretty fast as well. It's all a matter of whether we are dreaming. We started off as individuals dreaming, and God put us together in a church and then a movement of churches. We've got to go back to the beginning, guys, right now. Back to the beginning, it's me and God. It's all about me and God and what I allow Him to do in my life and what I'm dreaming for Him and doing for Him and being for Him. And when that works, it'll affect the church, and it will affect the movement. In many ways, the Dallas-Fort Worth Church has been an example for a lot of other churches. They've looked at us. Todd had the foresight at a meeting back earlier in the year to pull all the churches of 1,000 members and more together because churches have found it hard to grow when they reach that size. I'm grateful that he did it. We've got to learn how to grow at every size. But... Uh, 35 years ago, or 31, or something, no, 32, as I was in an audience and an elder in a church near here, he made a statement that I wrote down in the front of my Bible. Never give up your life for anything that death can take away. I've written that in all my Bible since. I think of that a lot. I preach about it a lot because... Uh, that's the bottom line. The only thing that outlasts death is your individual relationship with God and the other people that you've influenced in their relationship to God. 
I love that statement. It helps me stay on track. And so in the end of the day, my prayer is, God, please make us dreamers again.